Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. What an end to the 2021 football season, huh, people? I guess now I can officially say Happy New Year. Now that football season is officially over, it is 2022. And so, you can kick off 2022 by heading over to Bet Online today to continue betting on basketball, hockey, some MMA, and the big dance being right around the corner. Use the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up today. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live. Because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Friday, February 18th, according to my count. May not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in anyways. I I hate to tease people with the day of the week, especially when it's a Friday, because you may not be listening on a Friday. You may be listening on a Saturday or a Sunday or a Monday or a Tuesday. And to tease people like that, usually not the greatest idea. But it's Friday where I'm at, and uh, I'm enjoying that, uh, especially with a three-day weekend coming up. New guest joining us here today for the first time, Jason Aponte. You can check him out on Twitter, by the way. He is very good at making the memes. He uh, covers the 49ers. He does NFL draft scouting. He was at the Senior Bowl last week, which is pretty cool. This dude is awesome. Check out Sprint Ride Option Podcast and his Twitter and his YouTube. He's got all kinds of fun stuff. Jason was someone who came on the Slump Buster Podcast with myself and Juju Talk Sports, and he's really, really good at this podcast thing. So he joins us for like an hour today. Had an awesome conversation about the Niners, uh, Man Campbell, NFL draft scouting, laughed at the New York Giants a bit. We talked uh, in depth about the beefs that we have created with franchises over the many years. So I enjoyed that podcast. We'll get to that coming up early, or like no, later here, early in the podcast. I want to talk a little bit about Caleb Williams. And this was a segment we produced for our YouTube channel, which you can check out over on the, with the link in the description to this episode, it is CKSAML Productions. You can see the little yellow, uh, blue bar. I know I'm asking you to click on a lot of stuff, but if you do it one time, you can get access to all the content we do and help make our dreams come true. This is a YouTube clip that I produced on Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley and the USC football program. Because quietly during that NFL run over the last month, USC did something really unprecedented in the sport. USC basically bought the head coach and the quarterback of the Oklahoma football program. And Oklahoma is going to recover moderately nicely, but 
USC has the FU money to buy Oklahoma, which is one of the programs that we regard as having FU money all over the place in college football. They've been consistently great for like 40 years through the changing landscape of college football and are about to go to the SEC. And USC just straight up bought their football team with their head coach making $10 million a year, most of his assistants, and their star quarterback. So I wanted to talk about that in this wonderfully produced YouTube clip here on the Take It Easy podcast and on the Comical Sports YouTube channel before we get to our friend Jason. Escape. USC went out and bought the University of Oklahoma's football team and brought it to Southern California to try and get to the place that Oklahoma's been the past four to five years, which is the fourth best team in college football, perennial conference champions in a conference where USC has infinitely more resources than the other teams that they're playing. It's all super fascinating to me. And so I wanted to talk here today about what happened that brought Caleb Williams, the star quarterback, Lincoln Riley, the $10 million a year head coach, and a university with a somewhat illustrious football history, and really, other than the University of Oregon, the only school west of Texas that has the resources to compete on a national level in college football. What brought those three together, and how did USC do essentially a first-time unprecedented thing in an unprecedented time in college football? So that's a story I want to talk about today. Three parts. The first part I want to talk about is USC. USC is a football program that ranks top 15 in athletic budget every single year for the past 10 to 15 years. The only two schools in this camp west of the state of Texas are USC and Oregon. USC is one of these premier programs of college football from yesteryear, if you want to go back to national championships in the 60s, John McKay into the 70s, Marcus Allen in the 1980s that ends up leading into a down period in the 1990s, followed by the best era, possibly in the history of college football, the 2000s USC football with Pete Carroll, Matt Leinart, Reggie Bush. Ultimately, it would turn over to Mark Sanchez and Carson Palmer getting them to that place. In 10 years, USC had seven consecutive top 10 finishes, back-to-back national championships, and were one Vince Young touchdown and a half a Lendale White yard away from being the only team in the history of college football to make it to three consecutive national championship victories and make it to seven consecutive bowl games that were either the Rose Bowl or the Orange Bowl in years that the Orange Bowl decided the national championship. USC made it seven consecutive years to the essentially championship bowl game for a Pac-12 team. And USC coming off of 2005, the Vince Young championship game that everyone remembers, was still a dominant program. They just were not national champions every single year. And the strangest thing happened with USC, which talks about how difficult it was in that period of college football, where you have Ohio State dominating the way that Ohio State did with Troy Smith, the University of Florida teams with Tim Tebow that won multiple championships in that era. LSU and the rise of Alabama was in the BCS era. 
only teams that were undefeated throughout the season or had barely any bad losses. So they usually lose to another top five team. Those are the only teams that made it to the championship game. In fact, the 2000s USC teams of Mark Sanchez were part of the reason why college football moved to the BCS format. In 2006, USC lost two games. They lost one to Oregon State and one in their rivalry game to UCLA. 2007, they lose a game to Oregon State again. And Oregon State was not good that year. These were the Mike Riley Oregon State teams that won like seven games a year, maybe made a bowl game. They lost back-to-back years to Oregon State. And then 2008 is kind of when everything starts to fall apart a little bit for USC. Oregon with Chip Kelly kind of takes the mantle from USC as the only other program in the Pac-12 with the financial resources and will to compete at the highest levels of college football. Stanford has the money. Stanford isn't really interested in being this powerhouse college football program, even though they have the money to make David Shaw the fifth highest paid coach in college football. So they lose to Stanford actually with Jim Harbaugh at home. It was their first home loss in, I think, close to five years at USC. They lose at home to Stanford. And then this is when the sanctions start to kick in for USC. USC ends up having the Reggie Bush scandal break out, which a non-scandal in in hindsight, the Reggie Bush scandal didn't really mean anything. It was just all the things that name, image, and likeness make legal now took out Reggie Bush and USC as a program that was making an example out of college football and the power of the NCAA. Pete Carroll ends up leaving as the scandal begins to break. Enter Lane Kiffin as the new head coach of USC, who imposes sanctions in their first year, but pretty quickly turned things around. USC in 2011 makes it to the Pac-12 championship game. In 2012, though, everything starts to fall apart. Lane Kiffin is basically seen as a black sheep of the program of sorts, and Lane Kiffin ultimately ends up getting fired in 2013. And Clay Helton ends up being the interim coach for one game, while Ed Orgeron also is the interim coach the rest of the time. But when Orgeron doesn't get the permanent job, Orgeron ends up leaving. And USC ends up hiring Steve Sarkeesian as their next head coach from the University of Washington. And this ends up being a bit of a failed experiment because Steve Sarkeesian is basically just Lane Kiffin, an offensive-minded coach, relative success at a mid-level program, in Lane Kiffin's case, Tennessee, and in the case of Steve Sarkeesian, the University of Washington. And Steve Sarkeesian ends up getting fired after less than two years for having an outburst at a team event where he was drunk and things emerge about his alcoholism, and he ends up leaving the program in moderate level of disgrace. Even though the year that he gets fired, USC ends up having a turnaround season that leads to them making it to the Pac-12 championship game again. And Clay Helton, who is again the interim coach for USC, gets promoted to the head job. And Clay Helton is ultimately an offensive assistant, not a sexy hire at all, but he gets the permanent job because of the recruiting that is already in and quote unquote, keeping the program together at USC. And so Clay Helton ends up inheriting a team that the next year wins 10 games. I mean, not he was part of the recruiting process, but he didn't do any of the recruiting for that team. And the following year with Sam Darnold, they end up winning the Rose Bowl and then going to the Cotton Bowl 
in the third year of Clay Helton's tenure at USC. And so USC gets this program inherited with, again, a quarterback that ends up going in the first round of the draft and playing in a conference where other than Oregon, the other teams are essentially playing B-level college football. Arizona and Arizona State, not strong programs. Utah can be very good because of Kyle Whittingham being one of the great coaches in the history of college football, but they're a middle-of-the-road athletic budget program. They simply don't have the resources to compete with USC when they want to compete. Same for Cal and Oregon State and Washington and Washington State and all the programs in the Pac-12 besides USC and recently Oregon because of Phil Knight money that over the past 20 years has been pumped into that program as a major donor. So USC has all the resources to keep winning over and over and over, but they don't do any major winning. Apart from the one Rose Bowl season, they lose that Cotton Bowl in 2017. They play in the Holiday Bowl in 2015, miss a bowl game altogether in 2018 in a super disappointing year where Sam Darnold ends up going to the NFL draft and then they're kind of left in limbo. Helton doesn't do a great job recruiting because Clay Helton is not a special coach in college football and neither was Steve Sarkeesian and neither was Lane Kiffin. None of those guys are special coaches by any stretch of the imagination as we're seeing with Sarkeesian at Texas right now. It's not looking great. We see Lane Kiffin building up a great resume, but Lane Kiffin also left USC in disgrace after 2013 and had to do the long climb back up to get into college football. So Helton ultimately has a 2020 season during the pandemic where he goes undefeated in conference play and makes the conference championship game. They would lose that game to Oregon, I believe. And because they had this successful year in a year that they were ready to fire him, they decide Helton's going to come back for another season. This also includes the whole Lynn Swan controversy, which if you want to Google Lynn Swan, one of the worst unqualified athletic directors in the history of college football, not so much an administrator and more just a public face of the program. It didn't work out very well. USC ends up bringing in the athletic director from Cincinnati to run their, t- to run their program and Ultimately, they make a big splash move after firing Helton just two games into the season. They punt on the entire season. They fired a coach before the transfer window ends, allowing their players to either redshirt a season or straight up leave the program because they fired Clay Helton two games into the 2021 season, which never happens. Usually teams wait to fire the coach until later on so that players don't transfer at the beginning of the year. But in the transfer portal era, USC jumped the gun and said, here's the state of our program. Whoever the next coach is going to be, we're going to dump all of the players from the past regime. We're going to clean slate and let them work the transfer portal and work with recruiting to bring in those new players. This is the year we're going to dump so that we can get to 2022 and have a clean slate. So this brings us to Lincoln Riley now. Lincoln Riley is coming off of five years at the University of Oklahoma where he has two Heisman Trophy winners at quarterback. Baker Mayfield, who transferred in from Texas Tech as a walk-on, walks on again at Oklahoma, wins the Heisman Trophy, number one pick in the 2018 draft. And Kyler Murray, greatest high school quarterback in the history of the state of Texas, he ends up being the 2019 Heisman Trophy winner over to a Tonga Vailo, or 2018 Heisman Trophy winner, 2019 first pick in the draft over to a Tonga Vailoa, and Kyler Murray 
leaves the program, transfer in Jalen Hurts to Oklahoma, and Jalen Hurts finishes second in the Heisman behind Joe Burrow, who had maybe the greatest single season in the history of college football. No shame to Jalen Hurts for finishing second to that when Kyler won the Heisman and Baker Mayfield finished first. And everyone kind of regarded this as a system for Lincoln Riley. And Lincoln Riley comes from the air raid system, but Lincoln Riley over his time at Texas Tech with Mike Leach in the early 2000s as a wide receivers coach, graduate assistant. And then when he was coaching at Eastern Carolina before going over to join Bob Stoops at Oklahoma, and then at 32 years old being named the head coach at the University of Oklahoma, Lincoln Riley kind of molded and tinkered with the air raid offense a bit, a combination of spread offense plus the traditional air raid offensive line positionings and four verts routes and crossing routes. Those are the things that are associated with the traditional air raid offense that Riley incorporates into his own offenses. And so Lincoln Riley spends years with really good quarterbacks perfecting this system with Oklahoma and a, you know a team that's overwhelmingly built on offense but less so on defense and Oklahoma wins the pack or sorry wins the Big 12 every year for the first 4 years that Lincoln Riley is with Oklahoma Oklahoma makes the college football playoff with Baker Mayfield and they lose to Clemson in 2016 in 2017 they make it back to the college football playoff and they lose in a double overtime thriller at the Rose Bowl against Georgia. Following year 2019 with Kyler Murray, make it to the college football playoff. Kyler Murray, get, or sorry, 2018 with Kyler Murray, get to the college football playoff. They lose to the University of Alabama in the first game as the four seed. And then in 2019 with Jalen Hurts, make the college football playoff for a fourth consecutive year. And for a fourth consecutive year, lose in the first game. And that year, by the way, they ended up losing that game by being down 49 to seven in the first half because Joe Burrow threw seven touchdowns against Oklahoma defenses that were never any good. Like Oklahoma just didn't play defense like the old big 12 narrative of big 12 teams score 45 points and give up 48. That was Oklahoma with the Jalen Hurts here, 49 points in the first half for LSU. So four consecutive seasons, four missed college football playoffs, or sorry, four losses in the college football playoff semifinals. 2020, they finally missed the college football playoff during the COVID-19 season that was shortened. Now they did win the big 12, but two conference losses to get there meant Oklahoma was an upset team by the time they even got to the conference championship game. Iowa State surprisingly was the team that was supposed to make the playoff that year, which is when Oklahoma decides that they are going to move to the SEC. And that move was probably, from reporting we've seen after the fact, the one thing that steered Lincoln Riley out of Oklahoma more than anything else. Because Lincoln Riley was a God-type figure with Oklahoma. He was what Bob Stoops was when he was hired in 1999, mid-30s, offensive assistant coach given the keys to one of the premier programs of college football that spends exorbitant amounts of money to be great at the sport. And Oklahoma was this ideal situation for Lincoln Riley with a program that expects to be great every single year. And in the Big 12, it's very easy to be great every single year. Only Oklahoma and Texas spend the exorbitant levels of money 
that we talk about with USC and Oregon. You see the parallels here is that USC and Oregon can dominate all the B tier teams in the Pac-12 the same way Oklahoma and Texas, if they so chose, could dominate the programs in the in the Big 12. And by the way, Oklahoma did it for 15 years. Oklahoma dominated that conference going back to Adrian Peterson being there through the era of Sam Bradford into the time with Lincoln Riley. They dominated the Big 12. Texas struggled to get to that point, but Oklahoma was that team that was beating up on teams that simply could not compete with the resources and recruiting power of an Oklahoma. Baylor would be there every now and then. TCU would be there every now and then. Iowa State made their rise in 2020, but overwhelmingly, Oklahoma wins the conference every year. In fact, they won it for seven consecutive years, first four with or first five with Lincoln Riley. And 2021 is when it all started to fall apart. But in 2021, they got the hope that it would turn around from Caleb Williams. Williams ends up coming into the University of Oklahoma program from Washington, D.C. He's a four-star type recruit, and he ends up sitting the first year behind Spencer Rattler, who's supposed to be the next coming quarterback for the University of Oklahoma after a transition year with Austin Kendall, where they still won the Big 12 title, but they weren't really that good. And Oklahoma ends up bringing in Rattler as their number one quarterback. Williams sits behind him and Rattler struggles out the gate. Oklahoma plays a close game at home against Tulane. Oklahoma almost loses to Kansas later on in the season. It's a really weird run that Oklahoma has to start their season. And so in the Texas game, Caleb Williams ends up coming in as the quarterback to relieve Spencer Rattler in what we now know is a benching and he replaces him down 18 and leads them to a comeback in two quarters, overcomes an 18-point deficit against Texas, and beats Texas to keep their conference championship hopes alive. Ultimately, they would lose to Baylor, and that derailed their conference championship hopes, and they would lose to Oklahoma, and it was a rough, or sorry, Oklahoma State. They would lose to Oklahoma State. And those two end up going to the conference championship game because both of them beat Oklahoma. Oklahoma slated to play in the Alamo Bowl. Disappointing year the same way when Alabama doesn't make the college football playoff. It's disappointing. But more so than the disappointing season there, Caleb Williams was the the undisputed quarterback of the Oklahoma Sooners. Caleb Williams was Caleb Williams came into college football at the time of the name, image, and likeness transition as well. When name, image, and likeness universal laws were passed by the NCAA July 1st of 2021, which was only done because that's when they started to go into effect in the first states that legalized name, image, and likeness profiting for athletes, there wasn't really a whole lot of structure to the system. When you started off this college football season, you saw DJ Oyungalale in Dr. Pepper commercials. You saw some people posting advertisements on their social medias or a couple billboards in New York City, but you really didn't have a whole lot of structure to the system. And everyone started figuring out how you can set up LLCs and you know shadow company, create payrolls for players, which is a good thing, by the way. It's great that you can create payrolls for these players in endorsement type deals. The next step is for them to get money from the universities as well. And so you get this payroll type of structure 
created for some and then for the elite of the elites, Nick Saban talks about how Bryce Young made a million dollars in name, image, and likeness and how endorsement deals for major products can actually be a revenue stream when you have that level of value. And behind the scenes, you can make money to attend specific schools. And in the case of Caleb Williams, he got to be the face of college football, non-Bryce Young category going into the 2022 season. Because in college football, when we learn the names of star players, they often move out very quickly because they're only in college for three or four years. Caleb Williams, as a true freshman, ends up doing the similar type of thing to Bryce Young, where he captivates the nation and he's a name that people will remember going into next season. The same way everyone thought Sam Howell was going to lead North Carolina to a top five season because everyone remembered how good he was in 2020. Didn't work out that way, but it was a name everyone knew when most people didn't know Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, or Caleb Williams going into this season. When Lincoln Riley leaves, USC is now the team that's paying, in essence, for Caleb Williams to come play for their team. They're doing it through some name, image, and likeness type of stuff. Caleb Williams has three endorsement deals with Water Company and Beats by Dr. Dre, which is, of course, a Los Angeles-based company. And Beats Headphones gave him what's looking like approximately a million dollars to sponsor their product and be in a commercial that was airing during the Super Bowl. This is where the name, image, and likeness side, when associated with a university and having rich donors like the University of Southern California has, can work in their favor. And when USC put the will together to try and get Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams together in one swift package, it cost them about 20 to $25 million a year. But damn it, if, if USC didn't have it work out and they could bring the entire Oklahoma structure down to their program and build that up as a stable foundational point that probably can make them great immediately in year one. Yeah, they have to recruit and transfer portal the other pieces around those guys. But again, USC has the resources that only Oregon has in the Pac-12. The other programs can't do what USC did because they simply don't have the resources and backing to go get Lincoln Riley for $10 million a year, all of his assistants, and pay essentially $2 million to $3 million to bring Caleb Williams to your program. It's super fascinating, and only with the perfect confluence of 10 years of USC failure, Lincoln Riley's departure from Oklahoma because of their transition into the SEC and Caleb Williams deciding to then follow him with the name, image, and likeness opportunities and simply USC just paying him to come play for their team. Only then does USC build out a team that I think can win the Pac-12 in its first year. Thanks for stopping in, everybody. I appreciate it. Make sure to sub down below and uh, have a great day. What's better than having peace of mind? Nothing. And that's what NordVPN is here for, to give you peace of mind while you're online and protect you from all of the threats that you face on the internet. NordVPN is available on all of your computers and devices. No matter the operating system, NordVPN has got you. You can get your exclusive NordVPN deal today by going to nordvpn.com slash believe Use the link in the description to this episode as well. And use the code BLEAV. 
B-L-E-A-V. You can pick up 70% off, 70% off your NordVPN plan, and you get an additional month for free. It's also 100% risk-free for 30 days when you sign up. That's nordvpn.com slash believe. Once you go, one year, you're in. That's it. You just got to get in one. You don't have to, like, you all, You do have to reapply, but all your information is right there, and they take you right back, as long as you don't do anything, you know, dumb. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, last year, they gave us, like, a, a badge with paper because of COVID, and then this year, they gave us, like, this really snazzy one, like, with, like, and, and like, it had to be scanned and everything, so they, they stepped it up. But you have to remember, too, the security is just a bunch of college kids. So how much do they really care, you know? That's a good um, point. Yeah, like it's it's not like they're they're gonna be like vigilant, you know. They're just there to like you know collect whatever money it is and then just go back to campus because campus is right there. So, but it was a blast, man. It just it just rained like like shit the second day, like so much. (laughs) Like I've never been rained on that much. Oh shit, that's funny. So were you? um, It was the Jets and Lions, right? That were doing the Senior Bowl teams. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Were there any cool stories from that? I know it's like assistant coaches and stuff, but it's I mean, cool not from not from really them um, so much as it was like Mike Tomlin was talking to Malik Willis for 45 minutes after practice. And the buzz around the practice was that they want he wants Malik, but he wants a starter with him. So that's where Jimmy Garoppolo comes in. Oh, here we go. Bring it back to your boy real quick here. I guess this is the first time you've been on the show. I kind of like before this will introduce you, but I guess we should point out like, yeah, Jay covers the 49ers, but he's also like in New Jersey. So it's yes and no to that. But all right, let's let's do the obligated 10 minutes of Jimmy Garoppolo talk real quick here. We don't have to. We don't have to. Whatever whatever it is you got on the docket, I would actually like to not talk about that. But if that's what you want to talk about, then yeah, I'm with it. I'm going to follow you. I got you. I don't really. This is kind of like a chill idea where we just kind of talk for 45 minutes and sometimes it derails off where we end up talking about how thick the seal emoji is like sometimes that's just how these Good. podcasts I like sometimes i like uh, i like funny stuff like that yeah that's cool i'm with it all right all right so jimmy g is apparently going to collect a gigantic market except the colts are talking about like up and cutting carson wentz at this point which doesn't make sense either so that like all it, none of the big quarterbacks feel like they're available of sorts i know like deshaun watson's gonna have his legal situation figured out but that won't happen until like june or july Mm -hmm. so it just feels like everyone's like in the next month scrambling for quarterbacks that either aren't gonna make their team better or like in the case of garoppolo with the steelers it's like okay it's a slight upgrade over big ben but i don't know how much that's gonna change the trajectory of the steelers because they've got a bunch of other issues same thing with like washington who i know is heavily connected with jimmy yeah, and that's the thing is, uh, we're not started, right? This isn't when like oh, it's running at no. this point. It's oh. it's all just kind of going. I'll edit oh. it later. Oh, okay. Um, the thing is, is that a lot of what people don't understand is like the market is going to be dictated by other moves. So if Russell Wilson gets moved, if Aaron Rodgers gets moved, things like that. When all those chips start to lay, and you consider this quarterback draft class. Jimmy Garoppolo's market actually goes up and it has little to do with his play because his play kept him on the same even playing field. I don't think that anything that he did this year would change how people view him at all. But what I will say is look at coaches that are on either the hot seat or getting close to the hot seat that will try to make a move towards him. Washington is a great example. We all know how let's just use the word unpredictable Washington is with their front office, right? And how, and their moves. So who's to say that Ron Rivera doesn't have to win now, like right now, 
And say what you want about Jimmy Garoppolo. If you give him a defense, you give him a running game, and you put him in good spots, he can still win games in this league. He's still a starter. Like, and that's that's as some people take that as some sort of indictment, but I feel like that's something that you should be proud of as a quarterback, right? Not many guys can say that. So look at like somebody like that. Like now look now look at Houston, right? Lovey Smith is there, but doesn't it feel like Lovey Smith is being set up to just be a one-year guy because they've been dying to give that job to Josh McCown? So what does Lovey Smith do? Does he care about Davis Mills? development even though he's not going to be there next year or down the line or does he want to win games and pad his resume and see if he puts Houston in a bind where oh look they we, we won a bunch of games with Jimmy Garoppolo so it's less about his play and more about the market being dictated by who's available who will be moving and his draft class that's why everybody went crazy for all those quarterbacks last year because they knew that this year's um, class wouldn't be as loaded well, also, there were supposed to be four really good ones last year, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea of there are just quarterbacks at the top. I mean, I thought it was going to be the top four picks were all going to be quarterbacks, even if they weren't the four best players. But everyone's like, we see where the league is moving to, and you either need an elite quarterback or elite quarterback type, which is like Aaron Donald and TJ Watt and Miles Garrett. I guess would be like the game changers that aren't quarterbacks. Derrick Henry in that mix too, although I don't know how healthy he's going to be for the next couple of years. But I feel like everyone's seeing where the game is changing there. And if you're not one of, if you're one of the like 16 teams that doesn't have one of those, then you're kind of just stuck in the Colts case where it's like, do we move Carson Wentz? Do we not move Carson Wentz? We've got like four or five all pro players but so do a lot of teams and they also have Kyler Murray or they also have Patrick Mahomes or they also have uh, Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson or guys like that. So, I mean, the 49ers are, were the great example of the last 10 years that kind of proves the rule because they're the one team that's had consistent success without having any great quarterback because they've had like eight all pro players on offense and defense. Absolutely. And, and that's another thing, too, with the Colts, right? And that's a place that, that ends up being a destination because I actually feel like that's a scheme fit with, with Frank Reich and what he wants to do in the timing offense. I mean, he takes a little bit more chances, but you, you want a guy who gets the ball out fast. You've got weapons. You've got Pittman. You know, you're probably going to have Paris Campbell back next year, which I feel like he can still be unlocked and he can be that intermediate guy for Jimmy Garoppolo. He can operate that offense. Obviously, we know how good Jonathan Taylor is. The question just becomes for the Colts, you spent a lot of draft capital on Carson Wentz. Now you're going to have to spend draft capital on Jimmy Garoppolo as well, too. And now is, is this putting you behind the eight ball in terms of your future for a guy that, let's just be realistic, is a one or two year starter? And that's probably what his career trajectory is going to be going forward. The guy who comes in while you're grooming another guy or if you need a stopgap in the middle while you don't know where your future lies. That's what Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be. And that's not a slight of him. That that means that he's going to have a long career probably in this league. And that's impressive. I, I don't care, you know, what people really think about that. I mean, if you're a guy who is a starter in this league, who can win games and is consistently known as that and will consistently find work, then I think that's impressive, especially with how tough it is in the league. So the, the Garoppolo thing's funny on that way because – the way I've kind of broken it down in my weird brain a little bit is like Jimmy Garoppolo is a 10 year starter in the NFL by about like age 32. He'll probably be a backup kind of like what happened to Andy Dalton. It doesn't, doesn't mean he's going to be a 10 year starter in the same place, but somewhere he's going to start for 10 years, which I thought would happen with Derek Carr, but the Raiders have just decided we're cool. We're T our franchise sucks. We got a good thing going. We'll just, we'll continue going seven and nine every year. We're cool with that. Um, 
like Jimmy G, this is, I mean, he kind of started on the Patriots. He was good enough to start with the Patriots and he spent five years with the Niners. He'll spend a couple years somewhere else after this year. And then he'll probably be a career backup or like a bridge guy or starting for a really crappy team like the, the Dolphins or something. But it's, I guess the way I think of it is like assuming he's not like getting exponentially better at this point, every year that passes new guys kind of surpass him or surpass people of his caliber to where, you know, I'd look at Matt Ryan. I'm like, he's one big hit away from becoming Ben Roethlisberger. And every year he's, you know, new quarterbacks end up passing him, whether it be Herbert or Burrow, or I don't even know who is in the 29. I guess Kyler was the only good one in 2019. So, you know, slowly those guys end up passing the Jimmy G's of the world. Doesn't mean Jimmy can't be fine on another team. Carson Wentz can't be fine on another team. It's just, they're better options and it's hard when you don't have one of those elite guys. Right. And I think, again, a lot of people get upset, especially in the 49er Twitter world. When you say things like, Hey, Jimmy's like a 13 to 18 kind of guy. Right. Uh, and people are, well, uh, his metrics point to this, this, and this. Yeah. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it in terms of his limitations, in terms of what he brings to the team, in terms of, just where he lies around other people. A lot of you, a lot of people prop up the win loss thing. That's fine. And you know what? That is of uh, I guess it's 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 of it's one piece of the evaluation. It's one piece of it, right? Because the 49ers win games when he plays. It's it's a known fact, right? But in comparison to Nick Mullins and CJ Beathard, I would hope so. But at the same time, he still is a 13 to 18 guy. It's just the frustration that lies with many 49er fans is. One week he's 13, another week he's 18, and it, and it's everywhere in between, and you don't know which week-to-week guy you're going to get, unfortunately, even though this, this team in this locker room loves him. Dude, I heard a great point about this this year that like helped with that, where they were talking about, like everyone talks about where the Madden ratings of different quarterbacks are going to be, but if you have Carson Wentz, or the joke I call it the Carson Wentz experience, which is first half against Tampa, 190 yards, three touchdowns, 80% completion percentage, second half, 50% completion percentage, two picks, 90 yards, lose the game. Um, like sometimes you're a 90 and sometimes you're a 72 sometimes. And that's that was kind of the knock on Stafford and Kirk Cousins for the longest time it was like, no one knows if Kirk Cousins is good and no one knows if Stafford's good because they fluctuate between guys in the nineties and guys in the seventies. And the thing I'd point to on that all the time is Stafford was the number one pick in the draft and Kirk cousins was a fifth rounder. So I'm going to be like side with Stafford that way. And, you know, look what happened when he got a good team or I guess not a, a bad team like the lions, I guess um, like it'll work out, but it doesn't mean he's not wildly sporadic. I mean, if what is it? Tart drops the, doesn't drop the pass at the end of the NFC championship game, then Stafford still is the loser and the 49ers are the great. I mean, I'd say like the greatest team that doesn't have a quarterback over the past 10, like their Legion of boom levels of good making two super bowls in three years with no quarterback is pretty incredible for how well they've drafted that team. And by the way, gave away DeForest Buckner for free, like have eight all pro all pro players and just straight gave away DeForest Buckner. And I can't believe I came on this podcast so I could cry. I mean, I didn't know that that was, was on the document. I right said right you there. guys are the greatest thing since the Legion of Boom, like greatest roster construction without getting the quarterback position right in like the last 10 years of the NFL. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it, it's just a testament to uh, the roster that they built, the the players they've identified. I mean, sure, 
you know, the first Buckner thing is a bummer, but you know what, for all of those misses, I guess, in the first round or those type of moves, there's an undrafted free agent that they get the most out of like Emmanuel Mosley, a cornerback, or they, they sign Arden key and they get the most out of him and, you know, or like trade for Charles Omenehue and trade for Samson Ebukam and they become key cogs later on in the defense. So they've got a really good culture over there. And uh, it was very clear that Kyle Shanahan was hearing the whispers about only one successful season here. So pretty much why he ran with uh, the whole Jimmy Garoppolo thing um, with this roster. And uh, we may not have agreed with it early on. We, a lot of us wanted him to play the kid, but you really can't argue with it when they got that close to a Super Bowl. I think it worked out perfectly fine. Yeah. We all wanted the kid to play, but (laughs) no, I could argue it. I'd say they would have made the Super Bowl if Trey Lance had played. This is the, this is the same uh, Alex Smith, Patrick Mahomes argument that people bring up all the time is people always say, we'll see what happened with Mahomes. He sat a year and then, you know, he transitioned perfectly. I'm like, imagine if they played him that first year, how close they would have been to making a championship that year. Cause I assume he didn't miraculously get better over one season. Right. And I mean, look, that's a fair that's a fair argument. Right. But I really feel like Kyle Shanahan was more confident in the fact that Jimmy Garoppolo could get it done. He needed to have another season like this, because no matter what, you know, this team is committed to him. Here's all and he whispers about, you know, only one year. Are you overrated? You know, um, you know, uh, maybe it was 2019 a flash in the pan. And they had thoughts of doing a similar thing in 2020, except the entire team got injured. So I really believe that he was really nervous about what he could do with Trey Lance. And that's why he said, you know what, I'll take the year and uh, I can still get as much in Jimmy Garoppolo. And I believe that, you know, York's the York's, they told him, you know, we'll pay for Jimmy this year. You know, if you want to sit the kid, you know, and you just have to win, like you have to win. So like it, it got a little scary when it was three and five, because then it starts to look like, wow, three and five. Now, what are they going to do? But fortunately for everybody, he played better. The team played better. And then, you know, uh, you can't really argue with the result at the end. Do you feel like if the Saints had made the playoffs, they could have done the same thing the 49ers did? I don't know. Um, they uh, offensively, they, they're they severely lacking a quarterback. I think if Jameis Winston played the whole season, they would have been a team that nobody really wanted to play uh, because Sean Payton had really reined him in. But when you look at the limitations and you're playing Taysom Hill and you're playing Trevor Simeon, um, you know, the weapons. Michael Thomas wasn't there. That's the other thing, too. It's like they were trying to manufacture offense as best they could. Uh, I, I really don't think that they could have. The 49ers, regardless, still, the, the 49ers had the best offensive player. Yeah, let, now that we can have an argument, the best offensive player in the league this year. I know he didn't get any votes for our offensive player of the year, um, but Debo Samuel carried this team. And anytime they needed a play, it was mm. Debo Samuel. So, I mean, so that's one close. thing that the Saints oh, don't have I- yet. I thought you were going to say Trent Williams. I thought you were going to say Trent uh, Williams because well, we are on the, yeah, I was going to say we were on the Trent Williams should have won offensive player of the year oh, yeah. campaign. Oh, yeah. Deep. No, it was just, it was just every time that you needed a big play from Debo and, and I could point to many games that, you know, where were you when Debo Samuel saved the season that, that I can do five games where he's done things like that and he nearly did it again. So, I mean, the, the Saints just lack a guy like that. I mean, the entire league does. Uh, everybody's trying to find their new Debo, and I just don't think that that's possible. I just think that he's a one-of-one, one. and uh, that's the reason that the 49ers were so good. You know, the, the running game was there, but Debo Samuel was just incredible, and the fact that he didn't get one offensive player of the year vote is absolutely criminal because the thing that the things that he did at the wide receiver position are unrivaled and, ne- and have never been seen in this league ever from anyone. Well, offensive player of the year is just a stat thing. Like, I was talking to someone about this the other day where they were saying, what would it take for a tight end to win offensive player of the year. Like as the NFL changes and linebackers get smaller and tight ends become more receiving guys. I'm like, well, like practically 
as someone who argues Trent Williams should have been offensive player of the year, practically they would have to either break the all-time receiving record, the all-time touchdown record in a season, or the all-time receptions number in a season. And I don't think a tight end can do the yards or the touchdown one. I mean, I know Kelsey led the league in yards a couple of years ago, so I guess it would be just a high reception offense like Michael Thomas did that one year with Drew Brees. But this is kind of the weird evolution of football, right? Is like Debo Samuel is really good. George Kittle's ridiculously good at football. Like both of them could be hall of famers. Trent Williams is a first ballot hall of famer. Like that was, that was actually something that revealed itself for me. I was watching the, um, it was the Packers game. And at the very beginning, you know how Fox does the graphics where they show all the lineups. And when they got to the Niners, it was like use check pro bowl, Stebo pro bowl, Kittle pro bowl, Williams pro bowl. I was like, Oh, now I understand why Jimmy Garoppolo gets defended the way he does. That's an amazing offense. And I just never even considered it. Like they've got so many dudes there and, yeah, it's it's hard because the 49ers don't do it the traditional way we think of where we can say Cooper Cup had a shit ton of yards, a shit ton of touchdowns, and we know he's awesome at football or, mm-hmm. you know, Justin Jefferson breaks the rookie receiving yard record. The Niners are just so different than everyone yeah. else, but it they have so many talented players that it works. Yeah, the 49er fans are very spoiled. I mean, who else can say that they have a claim to the best left tackle in the world, the best tight end in the world, the best fullback in the world, the best offensive weapon in the world, right? Like, and that those are and and one of those guys hasn't even gotten paid yet. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, you know, again, you build a strong roster, you play complementary football. That's what the 49ers are doing. And it's it's uh that's that's what I think everybody is excited about with Trey Lance, okay? Because everything is in the construct of the offense with all of those things, and now you have a quarterback that you hope can lift. A little bit more right like when things are going wrong or things aren't um necessarily going according to plan that he can lift a little bit more and do a little bit more so i think that's what has, has everyone excited for the future and then you know you forget that brandon Ayuk is a very good wide receiver as well too it's just he just again there's so many mouths to feed and and especially in the games where the 49ers want to do what they do is which is like run the ball 35 40 times you know that kind of leaves somebody out and some days it's george kittle some days it's brandon Ayuk, but it's never debo samuel he's always the one who's going to touch the ball more than uh uh both those guys because he's just debo's like that as the kids say he's like that yeah and that was the thing that was different about the 2019 team was that it felt like they were like scrambling for an emmanuel sanders here or you know it was kittle and they didn't have much else now i look at them i'm like do they have the best one, two weapons in the NFL? I know, I know people like talking about Elijah Mitchell. I'm like, I've seen seven of you before and I will see seven more of you after you're gone. But those two guys, I'm like, they can go toe to toe with like anyone in the league, like Vikings and Cowboys barring them. Like they can go toe to toe with like pretty much anyone with that receiving core. And that's like a big deal for Lance who, you mentioned like he's going to step in here also on the rookie contracts so that you can pay Fred Warner, Bosa, like six different guys, max contracts. Cause the 49ers have so many dudes that are like, yeah. they weren't just all pro, but like the past three years, they've also been on rookie contracts, which is just insane. Yeah. Yeah. Bosa's next and Debo's next. And uh, yeah. So, I, and also Fred Warner has a claim at, at best linebacker in the league as well, too. So yeah, 49er fans are, are very, very spoiled um, at this point. And uh, I think that's what has them so excited is because you get a little bit more from the quarterback, 
Look at how far you went with Jimmy Garoppolo. I think that's what everybody's saying. So, I mean, in, in that way, I understand that thought process, but still at the same time, you have to temper a little bit just because it is Trey Lance's first year. He hasn't played in a while and there's going to be some bumps and bruises. It's not going to be smooth transition. Like I, I like, I like that you brought up the Alex Smith Mahomes thing, but I, I feel like it's not apples to apples in my opinion, only because I don't think that, you know, what Mahomes did in his first full season was unrivaled right like he just came in and he just was launching touchdowns everywhere I don't know if Lance is that but if you think about it and how far this team got with Jimmy Garoppolo it's not hard to picture just like a five to ten percent increase in quarterback play and what that can do for uh for a team that's moving forward so yeah they've got a lot of blue chip talent that they've got to make sure they've locked down but uh they've got that one big contract in the way that they have to move off of one way or another yeah, and if they move Garoppolo, they can make like sixty million in cap space, which I don't understand how that's possible for them. But that part's that part's pretty awesome for the Niners that they can they can make that work. And Jimmy Garoppolo gets to go bask in Carolina and enjoy his enjoy his uh, terrible terrible life. Another team that sent that sent capital for a quarterback, and you know that like they'll have Sam Darnold another year. And I don't know. I mean, it's just this the quarterback <laughs> shakeup. The quarterback shakeup this year is going to be substantial. I think there's going to be a lot of people moving, and and I think that once Russ moves um, or something like that, then things are really going to start to shape up. Plus, we don't know what's going on with Deshaun Watson. Is Tom Brady actually retired, or is he yes. just trying to beat, or is he trying to beat <laughs> Brett Favre's fake retirement record? Because that's the last thing he's got to break. I don't know, man. I don't know. No. I don't know. I would not put it past that man. Everything that he's saying now sounds like a guy who's at peace. But once he starts to see those pads pop in and everybody's back at, like he's going to get that itch again. I I don't know if he's necessarily done. I will put it at like ninety nine percent. But there's always that one percent with him. I, I you never know. And and somebody's gonna start whispering. Well, it's good that you left Brady because you weren't good. Yeah, I mean the guy threw for 44 touchdowns last year. But <laughs> once he hears something like that, it becomes personal, and all of a sudden he's back. So no, he just chose to walk away. Which, I, by the way, I said the week before. There's a, there's no chance he's retiring. But I mm-hmm. obviously I don't know Tom Brady. I just have operated under 20 years of assumption that he wants to keep playing. But he did play so until he was 45. So weird that he's not going to be playing football this year. I mean, if he doesn't play, it's going to be strange. I'm not. I'm not going to know how to do this. You know, like it, he's such a part of. You know, I'm. I'm 37. He's been playing since I was a kid, and it's it's strange, man. It really is. And there were no signs that he can't play anymore. Like it was. It no. wasn't like yeah. It wasn't like the guy was just. You know, like Ben Roethlisberger is what seven years younger. He's been done for three years, and yeah. this guy and this guy has been uh, at the top of his game, man. I. I You'll never see anything like that again from the quarterback position. It's something special. Yeah, but Big Ben's also just like beer chugging doesn't work out quarterback who uh, I, I I can't remember which defensive player said this. But there's a great interview where he's like when he hit Big Ben, it felt like he was hitting broken glass, like trying oh to sack God. Big Ben was like hitting broken glass. So his body was always going to get fucked at the end. Same thing with uh, Philip Rivers, like his body was always going to be screwed at the end because he was so contingent on sitting in the pocket and throwing the ball like he didn't have a chance there the rivers rivers has a plan one of his kids is going to make it big in the league so he's good and he'll he'll make some more money that way honestly do you know do you know what philip rivers is doing now actually is he coaching so he's coaching football at a like 
a, a, a prestigious school in Alabama because that school recruited his oldest son to play quarterback for the school. So he's coaching this team and his son is, I think, like a 10th grader this year. And his son is the quarterback for that go. team. Told you. I yeah. mean, that's the reason that you have that many kids. Yeah, except for all the, you know, the religious stuff. By the way, this is a thing we're learning. Like, it's not just him. Also, like Derek Carr's got like five kids. Kirk Cousins has five kids. I saw like Stafford was playing with his four kids and he's only like 31 years old. Like this is this is a thing, apparently, that I did not realize is that all these quarterbacks keep having a ton of children for some reason. And why not? I, but why is it only quarterback? Like, why is it like a broad uh, range across the quarterbacks? Antonio Cromartie. That was a Antonio Cromartie too. Also, um, Robert Sala's got like eight kids, I think. So it does. He's like 42. He's got like eight kids already, which is kind of so good. It was so good to see coach at the senior bowl, man. I wish that they would have made him available at the press conference because I was going to ask him a 49er related uh, question. But, you know, like at the end of the game, those guys just had to get out of there, him and Dan Campbell and them. But uh, it was really cool to see him and his coaches, actually. His coaches, he kind of sat back. And the same thing Dan Campbell did. So I think it was more a showcase for those guys to showcase them off to get them promoted. And, uh, you know, he, you know, the Jets ran a, a really good um, practice and uh, uh, Dan Campbell's presence can't be ignored. Like you can see him and you're looking and you're like, that's a giant man. Like you say what you want about his press conferences, but I would not say that to his face. That's the one thing I'll say. I, I would, oh God, we, we love man Campbell, but we're also like rooting for him to lose at the same time. It's a really weird thing that we have going on. Like I want him to succeed more than I wanted like Joe judge to succeed. Like Joe judge is kind of like cut from the same cloth, but I just wanted him to lose because I didn't want him to be a coach. Like, yeah, but he's I want, not a good guy. Joe judge, like Dan Campbell yeah. genuinely looks like a good guy. Like, you know, when I, when I got it, when he cried at the podium, a lot of people made, fun of that but i was like wow i was like he cares man and and that is something that they play hard for him because no matter what you want to say about the lions they they bust their ass this year for him and they got close in many games they put it all on the line they tied the steelers they 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 uh they had many games they lost the game to the ravens because justin tucker is the best kicker in the history of the world and nailed a 63 yarder like and they had two second delay of game on the fourth of 20 lamar jackson converted too right that's so right but they, they played hard for Campbell. Year. I'll put they played hard for Campbell, man. I'll give him that. And and that was something that you know, I know we made jokes about the kneecaps thing and everything. We're just like, oh, this guy's not gonna last. But you know what, man? I, I, I grew an affinity for him as the year went on because he got that team to play hard. It, it's it's not easy to get a team that you know, everybody walks into camp and they say, Yeah, this is our year, we want to make the Super Bowl, but deep down, you know you're not going to. But how do you keep those guys motivated? And I felt like Dan Campbell did a great job doing that, man. And I think that those guys really listen to him. So um, he and, and Deuce Taylor is about to get a job somewhere because of him. So, well, this is an interesting part about it because you talked about the Texans earlier and like setting up three consecutive coaches to fail, like Romeo Cornell set up to fail, David Cully set up to fail, uh, Lovey Smith set up to fail. Like, first of all, like Matt Campbell, the coach at Iowa State, was offered that job for like $59 million and he turned it down. Like, Man Campbell was like their fourth or fifth option for head coach. And don't forget, they took the lesser offer to trade Matthew Stafford, which this is like one of those what if stories that's connecting in my head now. If they took the Panthers offer, which was Teddy Bridgewater 
and the number eight pick in the draft last year, they would have maybe had Micah Parsons like that. They have set up Dan Campbell to fail. Mm-hmm. And he was like their fourth or fifth option. And they've been incredibly unlucky in one possession games. And st- still like they're celebrating after Amon Ross St. Brown caught that touchdown at the end. And they're just like, like they just won the Super Bowl because they won their first game of the year. It's like, I want them to win just enough to keep them around to not be the one rebuilding coach who doesn't ever get to see the fruits of their labor. Like always the coach that comes in for the losing gets fired as soon as things start to look good. Cause you can point to like how bad their record was or whatever it was. Like, I guess like Brett Brown for the Sixers was the one exception, but everyone usually gets fired when they're brought in to do all the losing. And I guess I, I guess for him, I want him to stay around, j- just win just enough to stay around with the lions. Like it's probably not going to happen. Cause this is a weak draft class and they're, you know, I don't really see a path forward for them. I know St. Brown's pretty good, but they, they ain't got a lot of talent there, but no, uh, it's also lion's reputation, but I, I want to see it like kind of work out. Even if he's set up to fail, I want to see it kind of work out for him. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it would be a dope story for former player. And uh, you know, uh, again, not everything is always X's and O's. There's a human element to coaching that people don't understand is, is can you get guys to compete for you? Can you get guys to buy in? Can you get grown men to buy in? Veterans in this league, right? Like when people come in and you shake things up and you change things, can they be open to it? And I think that's where Joe Judge failed. Everybody wants to be Bill Belichick and they and they want to, you know, they cut their teeth under Bill Belichick and they come in and they, they start to act like Bill. Well, you, didn't, you don't have that equity like Bill. Like you can't tell a 10-year vet, go run a lap. Wait, what? Like, that's not how things work, man. And it's just, again, that tough guy active wears thin, especially when you're not winning and you're not making correct decisions. Like, the one, one thing Joe Judge was supposed to be was a special teams coach. His special teams unit was horrid under him with the Giants. So, okay, so what do you do good here, man? Like, so, again, it it, uh, it all comes down to a human element. I think that the way you treat some of these players, the way you, you get them to buy in, even if it's a radical change, if you can get them to buy in, I think that's the hardest part of coaching is that human element and being able to manage personalities. And I think that people it, it go people don't understand that it goes way farther than X's and O's to be a successful coach. This works for like most leadership positions is like you can command respect, but if people don't respect you, then all of a sudden you've got nothing left there. I, I, I think it was Brandon Marshall was telling the story about it where um, they were on a team plane and it might have been Cam Cameron with the Dolphins was the coach and pretty much I one of the one of the veterans basically said I'm going to sit in the front of the plane when the coach was like everyone go to the back coaches are going to meet in the front and then when he did it the coach basically folded and was like okay fine and at that point it's like oh no nah, this we can walk just over, walk all over apart. this dude mm-hmm. and that's the thing I I always thought was the case with Joe Judge is like why do we have to listen to you is always the big point there and there are people who probably love Joe judge, but at the same time, it always felt like he was in over his head. But this is also the thing with like the crappy franchises. I said it about like the nine coaching jobs this year. None of them were actually any good. Like the Raiders one was fine, but that was like the best of the nine options. They were all crappy jobs to inherit this year. And sometimes you're going to inherit teams without talent. Only every now and then does a really good job open up. And even then like, 
the Chargers gave it to Brandon Staley. <laughs> I was like, okay, that was the best job of the next three years. Every other one is crap. And none of them really have like a path to acquire a quarterback or something. So unless you're like ridiculously lucky, like Zach Taylor, yeah, you're going to have a crappy team. You're going to have a crappy roster and you're probably going to lose a lot of games. So what are you bringing to the table as a coach sometimes? Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. I mean, yeah, that, that one did not work out so well for, um, I mean, really any Jaguars coach of the last 10 years, uh, any Jets coach of the last 10 years, except Rex Ryan. Rex Ryan was pretty good. Um, yeah, he was. Broncos, Panthers, Panthers be hiring Ben McAdoo now, which is funny, but. I mean, uh, he might be good. Oh, you know what? All right. So they call Ben, I mean, because, you know, I, look, I'm a, I cover the 49ers, but I'm, I'm still so in tune with the Giants and Jets just because I live like knee deep in their country. Um, they Ben McAdoo was on to something with benching Eli Manning. He just did it in the wrong way. Yeah, and, I've said it for years. He got fired for being right. And Giants right. fans pressured the team into keeping Eli Manning and they didn't get Josh Allen. Right. So the thing is, is this. If he would have come out and said, we want to see what Davis Webb has and benched <laughs> Eli Manning, people would have said, okay. But he said, we want to see what Geno Smith has. And Giants and Jets fans were like, are you kidding me, man? Like, we we know what Geno is, right? So, look. <laughs> but it's funny, right? He, yeah. It's like it's like the Thanos meme. You know, they call me a madman. It's funny because they eventually wound up doing it. And I just think it was the person that he decided to play ahead of Eli Manning that was part of the problem, right? Like, and, and they didn't do it in the right way. Like they could have, he had that streak Eli Manning of like games started and there was a classy way to do it somehow. Right. And I just feel like he didn't do it the right way. When Ben McAdoo changed his hair and he got the, the slick hair and everything, he changed, <laughs> like he completely changed because made him made the look, you mean the, the one that made him look like the league bowling champion from yep. 1992. <laughs> yep. Yep. But you know, it's funny how things work out, right? Like Ben McAdoo, was on to something because it was time to move on from Eli Manning, but he just chose to say that he wanted to play Geno Smith. And that's the part that I felt. I mean, it rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, come on, man. Like Geno Smith, we know what he is. Like you have Davis Webb back here. You drafted him. Now is Davis Webb going to be good? I don't know, but I would understand that more than playing Geno Smith because we know what Geno Smith is if you're going to bench Eli Manning. So I think that it's just funny how things work out in this league. Brian Dayball, I just looked this up because I wanted to find the career arc of Davis Webb because it's an amazing football He's name. Back. I, yeah. Brian Dayball's first move as Giants coach was to sign Davis Webb as his practice squad quarterback, back. which is the dumbest thing I've apparently he was in Buffalo for the last three years. I did not know that. <laughs> he was he was on the Buffalo Bills as uh what is it? Apparently he had a contract. He played apparently this year. He played against the Jets. I did not know this, that he came in in garbage time and he was still hanging around. But I was like, oh, God, I couldn't remember if he played at Texas Tech or my mind was saying Cal. But I yeah, he played one year at Cal Mm -hmm. and apparently he was also is that Kingsbury? Is that Kingsbury was the coach at Texas Tech? Texas Tech, yes. Oh man. Okay. Cause it was a name that was deep in my archive somewhere back in childhood. I'm like Davis Webb was playing quarterback for some shitty college football team. My mind said Cal, but he only spent one year there. Uh, 
that Davis Webb was just a fantastic comedic name to put in that Ben McAdoo was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play Davis Webb. Why? Because we're trying to get the number one pick in the draft. That's why. <laughs> or at least or at least say this. We want to see what the kid has. His team is not going anywhere. Let's find out what we have. And now all of a sudden he's back. It's like, you know, time's a flat circle in New York, whether it's Buffalo, uh, which is upstate New York or at MetLife. But it's pretty funny how things work out in the league. And it's always funny to go back and like connect these dots because you can always find a funny way to correlate it and pull it all together. And it's just, it's crazy because I I was speaking with one of my Giants fans friends and I'm just like, Davis Webb is back. And he's like, I, I can't believe it. I'm like, yeah, just go get Kyle Law letter back and, you know, boom. Like, let's get the whole gang back in here. Like, what the hell are we doing here, man, at this point? So who else? Are, so we got Jake Fromm's in this group now. Who else is in yep. this group of shitty Giants quarterbacks from the last 10 years? <laughs> who was who um, Eli Manning's backup early on back then? Um, oh, my goodness, man. Um, so he took Kurt Warner's job early on. Da- uh, David Carr. Um, <laughs> I forgot um, David Carr played for them. I mean, I'm a child. Like you talked about Tom Brady being great when you were it, like a kid. Tom Brady won his first Super Bowl the year I was born. So, wow. Wow. so it's right, literally been this, my. We could end this podcast. We could end this podcast now. You know, I think it's past my bedtime anyway with my old self. Um, <laughs> uh, Curtis but, Painter uh, yeah. also. Curtis Painter was a Giants quarterback. <laughs> Good God, man! Golly, I mean, look. uh it's all good when you're making fun of Giants fans over here, and then all of a sudden they beat your team and move on, and they win the Super Bowl, and you've got to kind of sit there and eat that. So I've gotten away from that a little bit, just trying to just but be more it's, objective. It's been a decade, though. Like, it, it is a decade of – the Giants' last Super Bowl was literally a decade ago. Yeah. It was a decade ago this year. But they're still not going to let you forget it. Like, if you if I tell somebody I'm a 49er fan, oh, remember when we beat you with Kyle Williams with the fumble? I'm like, yeah, uh, you know, I wake up in cold sweats, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. But sure, I haven't thought about it at all, you know, but that's how it is. Such is life living here. It's it's one of the most unique, like, franchise stories. So we there are franchises that I, I quote, unquote, beef with on the podcast. And basically the way I choose this is teams that are perpetually mediocre, but their fans still have high expectations because mm-hmm. you're going to be right more often than you're wrong. So it's like mm-hmm. the Bears, the Giants, and the Broncos. Those are the, those really? are the winners there. What's the, how, did yeah. the Bears, how did the Bears get like that? Like, explain the, that one to me a little bit. The Bears one actually kind of goes back to childhood a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it was kind of the Aaron Rodgers bears thing. Cause bears fans, Chicago is like a big city. So I think that that kind of does part of it is that there's bears fans everywhere. And there's like a regional pride around it, but the bears have been kind of shit for a long time. And I, they had a, a few good years in there where they make a shocking super bowl run. They made it an NFC championship with uh, Jay Cutler, I think was one of them, but all they in all, to, it's lots of Rogers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they lost to Rod. I think they made another one in there. Someone said Lovey Smith made three NFC championships. I can't remember what the other one was, but maybe, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was the Cardinals. One. Anyways, I think they made a third one in there somewhere. But like by the standards of the NFL, the Bears have been one of the five worst teams in the NFC over the past like twenty years because. Yeah, they made a Super Bowl. So have 13 teams in the NFC over the past 15 years. That's true. Uh, so Chicago is one where I think there's an expectation versus reality. Chicago is not as bad as the Giants. Like Giants fans are kind of moving towards Jets territory where they kind of like, yeah, we suck. We know we're we're terrible at this point. But the Bears, 
I think there's just a lot of regional pride to it. And it's fun to mess with people who have regional pride. I think I, the Broncos one's easy. It's just so new because they were great right. for 45 years. And then the chiefs took all their shit. Now, right. John Elway is basically running the team. I have a, I have a sore spot for the bears a little bit, right? Like a soft spot, like two, like for two reasons. One, I visited there this year when they played the 49ers, their fans are really nice, man. We had a good time. Soldier field is a beautiful place. And you know, to go to one, of those landmark stadiums and and cross that off your list and by the way anybody listening and including yourself um soldier field is going to go away soon they're building a new dome in chicago so i would implore anybody to get out there at least and just check it out one time so you can say that you've seen it because they are going to build a dome which is like it boggles my mind that in chicago they would even think about that because whenever you think of the bears you think of those nfl films like it's freezing all you see is you know breath in the air like dick buckets all those guys but that and two, I'm I'm a huge, huge, huge Justin Fields fan. That's who I wanted the 49ers to take at three. And I want them to, you know, help him out a little bit more. Um, get him a good coach, get him some, get him some weapons, get him some offensive line, put that kid in a spot to win because I, I still think the world of him and I think the 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 book isn't written on him um just yet, just because he had a, a slow start to his career. So the the Bears one is interesting. Also, the way I've been describing it for a little bit is that they're about to white flight Chicago. They've got to move deep out into the suburbs in Chicago at this point with that football stadium going away. But the Bears thing is fascinating because I also was big on Justin Fields, but I also have kind of recognized like location does kind of dictate success a lot of times in the NFL. So you know, Mac Jones was a pro bowler this year, but Mac Jones is not better than Justin Fields by any stretch of the imagination. Now you're talking my language. Let's go. No, I mean, we, I mean, we hated Mac Jones in the draft process because it was so dumb that he was being considered for the three pick, but it's so strange that fit matters that much because all of these teams inherited crappy situations and Mac Jones inherited a great situation and we're not very smart at doing the analysis sometimes when it comes to, what we're watching in the NFL sometimes. Like I look at Mac Jones, I'm like, what are people seeing there? That's not like worse than Jimmy Garoppolo at times. He doesn't really do very much offensively, but he also, I think they had to call like nine people before getting to him for the pro bowl team, but he did play in the pro bowl apparently. And the fields thing is fascinating because it would have been perfect if he had fallen to 15 with the Patriots. Cause it's a good situation to inherit, or at least it was a good situation to inherit. I just, yeah, and they would have bridged that pretty well, and he would have had some of the same successes there. And, you know, maybe McDaniels leaving changes the math on this and what the Patriots are, because the Patriots have had like bad offenses the last three years, and the Bears have had bad offenses for the past 20 years. And I feel like that's going to possibly swallow Justin Fields, but I still believe in him. And I I want to believe in him more than I want to believe in the bears because it's more fun to make fun of the bears than it is to have them be good and enjoy Justin Fields in that Uh, way. Well, the third thing is too, is uh, one of my good friends who's actually a bears fan. He met us out there for the game. He gifted me a bears, Justin Fields, Jersey, the blue one. And I got to say, I'm a big through and through 49er fan that blue with the orange, that is clean. And, uh, you know, the the one time that I did wear it was when Justin Fields on Monday Night Football showed out against the Pittsburgh Steelers and, like, like a proud dad almost, like, rooting <laughs> him on. Like, I mean, he was making so many big-time throws. And every time he did, I'm like, that's what I was talking about. In the, name of, in the face of pressure, you know, with this good defense, 
lights are on kids been getting hit he keeps fighting he made so many throws in that game that i like i could like cut up 10 of them and just say there it is that's what i'm talking about that's that's the those are the glimpses right and i asked uh, my best friend uh you know after i said i know you lost i was like but how do you feel this morning he goes i feel like we won he was like because i got to see and I'm like, exactly. Right. Like wins and losses don't dictate what you should be looking at. Right. You're, you're looking at progress. And when you start to see those glimpses, OK, you lost the game, but you know that there's more. And that's a little bit of what he can do. And, uh, you know, I was taken, you know, when I went through the draft process, I was taken with his toughness. I was taken with his accuracy at all three levels, which is the best in, in NCAA. Um, that's not even a that's not even a, a, a subjective thing that's subjective. And I was also taking with his mental toughness. Like when things get tight, he's still he's still level, right? And he's still like like that. And that's the thing that I mean. Obviously, the skills are there, right? The kid's got a rocket arm; he's blazing fast. Um, sure. Does he have deficiencies? Maybe he holds the ball a little too long. Yeah, for sure. Like, but that can all be worked on. And again, an offense and a system that's conducive to bringing out his, what he does well would have helped him a bunch, right? Like Matt Nagy did him no favors, not none at all. Even when they turned the play calling over to somebody else. But it's funny because that, that 49ers game that I went to, he actually played very well in that game too. And it was, it was a very like, you know, I don't know if you ever watched Kirby enthusiasm, but there's that gif of like Larry David. And he's just like, like Larry, like he scored a touchdown, but it's like against my team. I'm, I'm happy for Justin Fields, but like, but he showed all those glimpses. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, crazy to me how people are trying to write the book on all these guys right now as if you know matt jones was obviously clearly number one the surprise number two quarterback in this rookie class was davis mills he was the best one behind him and i don't i don't even that's that's insane to think about right now at this point so does that mean that trevor lawrence is a bust does that mean that uh trey's a bust because he didn't play or does that mean that justin's a bust no you know it doesn't and and does that mean that zach wilson's a bust no so it's it's interesting how people are ready to jump to their conclusions to confirm their priors because so many people that were in love with mac jones are like well you see yeah well he did well but he was in a perfect spot and i don't think that anybody disputed that he was the number one guy ready to step in and start anywhere 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 i think all of us would have said it, which guy would be ready and is going to have the most success it's Mac. but even what we saw maybe he hasn't hit his ceiling but it feels like he's damn close it feels like he's damn close to his ceiling and i think that's what it is well yeah because physically we can see mac jones is not as physically gifted as these other quarterbacks which is what gives them the hope it might not always work out for them like uh jamarcus russell was seen as like physically gifted and that didn't end up mattering in the end but it, I look at Trevor Lawrence, I'm like, I know that that dude can do things that other quarterbacks can't. Justin Fields can do things other quarterbacks can't, but hope is a hell of a drug. Like, especially if you're for a, if you root for a hopeless team, it hope can be a hell of a drug because why else are you doing this? If you're a team that, you know, you are, I mean, I'm over here in Sacramento. So if you root for the Sacramento Kings, you know, you just have no hope. And Kings fans, one of my favorite things was during the, the pregame for Sabonis's first game, they put up a sign on the background that said, welcome to hell. And they know it like Kings fans know there's no hope, but you can either bask in that. And when you do get hope, sometimes, you know, bears fans can get really hopeful. Um, Jets fans get hopeful. Every time they get a quarterback, Jaguars fans want to have hope. And it's so much fun when their hope gets crushed because then you get to be put in your place. And the way to accept it is to just not have hope, but that makes sports less fun. It's more Absolutely. fun to have hope there. Also, Ryan yeah. Nazib, backup quarterback for the for the oh. New York Giants. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, um, what it what is it? It's uh, expectation, 
leads to disappointment more than anything. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you're, you're right about that. Hope is a hell of a drug. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, again, people just don't understand that you can't be rushing the judgment on any of these guys at this point. Like we don't know anything in the same way that Mac had an amazing, you know, rookie year. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be better than any of these guys going forward. We may look back at that in three years and say, that was the outlier. Now look at all these other guys in the same way that, you know, Trevor Lawrence, we know that there's more there. We know that, that, you know, the Jaguars are an absolute shit show. Um, But at the same time, I still have, I still know that the kid can play, man. He's been the golden child since he was born. Like he's the one, he's been the one, right? Even though Justin Fields smoked his boots in, in, you know, in, in the playoffs, but nobody ever wanted to talk about that. Right. Um, But at the same time, you know, again, we, we have a lot to learn about these guys, a lot to learn about them. And I think that that's what makes the scouting process so fun. That was what was last year. I, we, we dug in as 49er fans because we knew at three there was going to be a quarterback taken. We all fell in love with who we fell in love with. That was one part of the process this year at the Senior Bowl and, and through the draft process. I have learned how to scout other things now. The 49ers don't need a quarterback now. They need offensive line. They need safety. And, and that's not as sexy or as fun as like scouting wide receivers, running backs, tight ends sometimes. But you have to learn all those things. And I think that's what I'm, I'm starting to love about the draft process and starting to learn love about the whole scouting thing is because when you get it right, and, and you look at guys like, you know, like I can do skill position. You can know when guys are, are, are built like that. Like the 49ers drafted Jalen Hurd and they, they left Terry McLaurin on the board. That's something that I'll never, I'll never get over. I would never get over it. But they were both at the senior bowl. Kyle Shanahan was there. He got tunnel vision on what he thought he could do with Jalen Hurd instead of the right thing, which is right there in front of you. Terry McLaurin was that guy. It was him and Debo Samuel. You could have had Debo Samuel and him in the same draft. That's it, 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 It's insane to me what this offense would look like with Debo Samuel, Terry McLaurin. Maybe that means Brandon Ayuk is not here, but Terry McLaurin's a ball player, man. Like he's, he's one of the best receivers in the league and he just hasn't had a quarterback. So, that's what that's what makes it fun. But again, like I said earlier, for all of those ones that I complain about, you know, they they let the Denver Broncos jump them so they could draft Javante Williams and they took Trey Sermon, which I'm not I'm not getting over that one anytime soon either. <laughs> but at the same time, they do a great job. They do a great, great job on the back end. They do a great job developing their undrafted free agents and getting more out of those. So you still have to give them credit in that fashion. Yeah, it feels like the 49ers are never in the middle. It's either we just drafted an all pro player or a cataclysmic uh, bust. That's like there's there's never any Mike McGlinchies. It's like they, they never make picks that aren't catastrophically terrible or amazingly drafting Hall of Famers in the third and fifth round. Dante Pettis, man, I can go down the list. Joe Williams, like like the thing is, oh, is I thought they, Dante Pettis was going to be so good, man. We I all was, did. Oh. We all did. After the, after the first little glimpse in those first five, those last five games without Jimmy Garoppolo, you were just like, oh, sky's the limit. It's just, you know, look, Kyle, Kyle has a way of he wants to do things his way. And if you don't, then it's it's he tests you. Right. And he tried it with Brandon Ayuk. And you know what? Brandon Ayuk came out the other side better for it. And he thanks Kyle Shanahan. But that just is built on like, you know, those two guys and just their mental state. Right. And that, that's the thing with Dante Pettis is just he couldn't take the criticism. Man, I remember I spent like a 10th round pick in fantasy on him. I was like, this guy's going to be so good. Uh, Dude, no. I had dynasty I had dynasty shares all over of him. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'm going to crush all of you with him as my wide receiver three. Like I was on him. I was on like Deontay Johnson, all these other guys. And like he was the only one who didn't pan out. But yeah, Dude, man, it's but. it's funny that you mentioned him because I saw him on the Giants this year wearing like Odell's old mm-hmm, jersey. 13. 
I was laughing at that so much because I'm like, this team had like six wide receivers and they still needed a fucking Colin Johnson playing at the end of the season. I'm like, you, I could name more receivers on the Giants than probably any other team going into the year because they just signed so many just marginal dudes and they, Dude, they still paid, all got hurt. They paid Kenny Galladay and he didn't score one touchdown this season. I mean, even hit like they had John Ross on that team. They had yep. Shepard. They had yep. Slayton. They yep. signed Kyle Rudolph. I didn't see yep. him anytime this year. Like they had so many dudes and then they all got hurt. Poor roster construction. I mean, that's just Gettleman, but he's not there anymore. So it's a, no. it's a new era now. It's a new era, but same owner. So it'll probably end up failing. I mean, hey, look, you said it, not me. But yeah, the, the, that's probably my thought as well, too, especially uh, when you talk to a lot of time. Fans, I'm like, it's not the coach, it's not the general manager, it's the people that allow these things to happen. That's why the Knicks are never going to be good, mm-hmm. unless unless Matt Corral turns into the next, I don't know, Aaron Rodgers. What do you think? Not for that. What? What do you think of him? I mean, I don't know. He was he was supposed to be the senior oh. boy. He got injured. So I I don't pretend to be like a big scouting person. Uh, I we we have a guy who does like 250 player grades every year. Who's our good friend on the show, and I trust his expertise more than myself because I just don't know what to look for sometimes. But uh, I I don't know how to do the analysis on Matt Corral because he looked awesome in college. But I would have also said like there there are guys i mean go back to um drew lock like drew lock cannon of an arm everyone said he was a second round grade i trusted them on that lo and behold he was a second round grade so if people say he's kind of a mid first round guy i'm not gonna pretend i watched a ton of old miss football this year um, i watched the game against bama and the one where they like threw shit at Lane Kiffin after the game, but um, I, I just don't know about Matt Corral. I don't know about any of the people this year, but um, the best advice I heard was that the number one guy in this year's draft would have been like this five or six pick in last year's draft. So that kind of gives me a sign that this year's probably not like this. The game is changing where you can find maybe some people within the margins. I heard the lions were trying to trade down from two and that kind of made some sense, but if the Jets and, Gi- and Giants have five of the top 10 picks in a weak draft class, this is probably going to be one of the worst draft class in the history of the NFL. If That's how this is working. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's strange. I don't want to downplay anybody because I fell in love with a lot of guys in Mobile that I wasn't even like like keen on. Right. Edge rushers, offensive linemen, especially because like I felt like those are guys that the 49ers can pick. Um, like Jalen Petrie jumped out at me, man. He's a safety. I think he'll be there at 61. Um, Arnold Abukati from, from Penn State, he jumped out at me, man. These are all needs for the 49ers. But, yeah, that again, any one of those five guys from last year's quarterback class would be the number one pick this year in this draft. Any one of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that includes that. And, and let's just say we knew what Davis Mills was going to be. Davis Mills would be a first-rounder, too. But all five of those guys, like Justin, Matt, Zach, Trey, Trevor, all of them are number one picks, uh, the number one pick this year if they were in this draft. This is the interesting part is like, I, I know we downplay the draft sometimes, but even the worst draft classes still have like Hall of Fame caliber players because there's just so many players that get drafted and enter the league that some of them are going to be good. Like the the draft class that had like Eric Fisher and like Luke Jokel and Dion Jordan at the top of the draft. Like, I think that class also had like DeAndre Hopkins and Xavier Rhodes and like a bunch of really good people in it. So even the worst draft classes still have really good players. It's just, we don't know 
who's going to be great and who's not. Uh, Justin Jefferson was being debated of like, is he the fourth best guy or the fifth best guy in his draft class? And lo and behold, he's like, well, he's just amazing a slot guy. Yeah, he's exactly. Slot guy. Yeah, because that's what he was at LSU. And people, people like as much as there's like an over analysis of draft now, like there's more draft analysts than there is like a need to do it. Like even still with that, we just sometimes can't see hey, the two best receivers to enter the NFL in the last five years, they happen to play on the same college team. Like we sometimes we just can't conceive that that's even possible. But oh, and by the way, they're also going to play with a quarterback who has like elite abilities in the NFL, that they're all going to be on the same team together is something that even then we just can't conceive even when we see them score seven touchdowns in the first half against Oklahoma in a playoff game. Right. And that's what's funny about that wide receiver group, right? Like DK, AJ, uh, uh, Justin Jefferson, CD. CD yep. I even knew. Judy. I'll give Judy, Judy some love. Yeah, Judy, Judy's still really good too. That's that's one thing that I want to make sure we knock out of it. But Judy, um, I know I'm missing people. I, I know for sure I am, but yeah, there's class, there's someone else in there. I'll try and I'll see who else was Pittman, there. Pittman, Pittman, Michael Pittman. Oh, um, Claypool was also there. Claypool. Too. There you go. Look at that. Look at look at that draft class. Like we can look back at that draft class in a few years and say that is the best wide receiver draft class probably in the history of the league, man. And and that's what's uh that's what's a beautiful time to be doing all of this, right? Right. And and then this is what's fun about scouting, in my opinion. You look back at your process and you tweak your process. Justin Jefferson's a slot guy, wrong. One of the best receivers in the league. DK Metcalf can't play wide receiver because of his three cone. Wrong. You you don't make him run those sort of routes. Like a lot of people jump and they move around. Like uh, and look, and I don't I don't want to bring this up. I hope if you're an Eagles fan, I'm not I'm not trying to offend you or anything like that. The Eagles drafted. Jalen Rager over Justin Jefferson. And I I feel for Jalen Rager, right? Because, and Justin Jefferson even talked about this. When we were talking earlier about Radio Row, Justin Jefferson said this. I feel for Jalen Rager because he's always going to be remembered because he was drafted ahead of me. And that's not fair. He's like, that's not fair. And that's not his, you know, that's not his problem. But that's what he will always be remembered as, unfortunately. And that's what makes all this really, really interesting is to be able to look back, okay, I was wrong here. This is what I was looking at that was wrong. And you tweak all of your processes and you find you find that sweet spot to where you're in your most efficient scouting mode, I guess. That's the best way I could put it. But that's mm-hmm. what I'm finding about this. Unfortunately, last year, the 49ers put me into draft mode early in the season because you knew nothing <laughs> was going to happen. I got a late start you know, from this one because I went to LA for the, for the game. Um, and then I had to take a flight from there right to Mobile under worse circumstances. I thought I would be partying in Mobile with the NFC Championship. Fortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> but I got there late, right? Like, I got to the drive process late, so I'm trying to catch up. So, you know, thank God for for those people. Uh, you know, Jim Nagy, um, what's her name? Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, uh, Molly Middleton, you know, they're great. They, they send us all the film. We have all that stuff that we can break down. But now it's time to get into, like, all these draft process, these draft people and your process again. And it's, it's actually I'm, – I'm really excited only because now – I have to do a better job of watching skill positions that the 49ers actually need, as opposed to just saying, well, I need this wide receiver to go to this team for my fantasy football team or, you know, or, or this quarterback to the 49ers, right? Like, so now you really have to put yourself in the mind of like scouts, GMs, guys that are trying to fill out their roster and they're trying to do it in the correct way through the draft. That's what makes it so exciting. And that's what makes this the, the most fun league to cover that there, there's no league in this world that is a constant news cycle 
and constantly has something to talk about. Now, whether your interest in that dwindles in the offseason, which is completely fair, or it doesn't, they still always give you something to talk about. And that's what makes the NFL a beautiful thing. So fingers crossed that I get that in, that combine invite uh, so I can get out to Indianapolis so I can have more to talk about. But I love uh, I love covering the NFL. This is my favorite sport by far. Hey, man, you've done this all in two years. That's all pretty incredible, too. Like, you've Appreciate done a great that, job with all of this, man. And uh, I hate to derail this at the end, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out that last year, Colt McCoy and Alfred Morris went into Seattle as New York Giants starting quarterback and starting running back and beat the Seattle Seahawks. That is the ultimate walk-off Mike drop New York Giants backup quarterback. Wayne Gallman, baby. Wayne Gallman too, man. That's it. Is Get Wayne Gallman still on San Francisco? I know he no, signed we, there. We cut him early on in the season. I have no idea why they did that. I mean, I get it. You have to get down to a roster, but I thought he was going to make it just based on his track record and pass pro because of how Kyle is and how maniacal he is in trusting people. That's why Trey Sermon didn't see the field. But he got waived and he got picked up by Atlanta and nothing really. I mean, I, I don't know. It's really strange. I, I actually think that he's a much better player than he's given credit for. <laughs> You nailed it. He did get picked up by Atlanta. Did you know that he's now on the Vikings? Apparently he's I now- did know that. I did know that right after. So I remember it was the week that Dalvin got what well, was diagnosed with COVID Alexander Madison started and Gallman was his backup. So they just needed a guy that they could have in there, but that's where he's at. Oh right now. man. What about Amir Abdullah? Is he still, he's still hanging around? Amir, in Minnesota? Uh, no, he's in uh, Carolina. Oh dear he God. Played oh. He actually played down the stretch because, you know, McCaffrey got injured. And uh, who's the guy behind him? Uh, Chuba Hubbard. Um, he got injured, too, or whatever. And, but uh, Amir Abdullah was their passing down guy. It, it, it's crazy to see. Like, it's so crazy to see, like, his journey. And then look at, like, a guy like Cordero Patterson, right? Like, completely, like, who saw the eighth-year breakout from Cordero Patterson coming? Nobody. <laughs> and that's what's Cordero Patterson, no, in fairness, I, I don't like people disrespecting Cordero Patterson like that because he was a great kick returner for all these years, like one of the best in the NFL. The problem was just pitch him the football and give him a five-yard head start and make him basically be like a kick returner. And now he can be a serviceable running back instead of trying to be a wide receiver and get break off the line. He was always just playing the wrong position. He's going to get paid. He's going to get paid now. I mean, he's a free agent now. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it, I agree with that. He just was underutilized, but now like it, it, what I mean by eighth year breakout is you saw the fruits of it all come together, man. He was so good returning the ball for Minnesota for a long time. But uh, yeah, it, it's strange. to everybody's journey is different. Everybody's journey is different. Like there's guys who are uber talented that never really pan out. There's guys who are not as talented, but they work their ass off and they have long careers. And then there's guys that are talented and maybe it just doesn't happen as fast as you would have thought because of how good they are. And again, that's what just makes the sport so beautiful. I will never forget that Amir Abdullah once made all big 10 first team over Melvin Gordon in college. Wasn't his, but wasn't Amir Abdullah's first touch in the NFL, a house call. Like it was, it was as a handoff and then in Detroit and he, and he took it to the house and everybody was just like, look, man, Oh my God, look at him. <laughs> And that was he it. was I think he was the one who broke that Reggie Bush streak of like five consecutive years with the Lions not having a hundred yard rusher. I think he was the one who broke that that fun stat that used to exist. I'm going to look it up real quick. Yeah, it, it does say on his Wikipedia that he 2015, he had the most kick return yards in the NFL. He led the NFL in kickoff return yards in his rookie year and uh, does not look like very much has happened since yep. for him. First carry, first carry of his career against the San Diego Chargers, shook Super Bowl champion Eric Weddle and went to the house. Uh, <laughs> God damn. Funny how, 
Funny how <laughs> things happen, huh? Dude, I grew up in San Diego. So like Eric Weddle was like the star when I was like nine years old. The fact that he was still playing in the Super Bowl was just baffling to me. Because he tore his peck in the Super Bowl. Yeah, because he's 38 years old and didn't play football for two but years. But he played, he played through it, man. What a warrior, man. Uh, it's a, he you led know, the look. team in tackles against the Niners. It's the dumbest shit ever. You know, uh, do you know Will Blackman on Twitter? Uh, I don't Blackman? think so. All right, so Will Blackman so. used to play in the league, right? And uh, he sent out a tweet before the game, and he was like, if the safeties come down to smack, they're going to beat the 49ers. And I retweeted him, quote tweeted him with, like, a smack emoji. And I was like, not worried. <laughs> <laughs> then what happens? And then Will Blackman dunked on me. He liked the tweet. Like that was one of those like shady likes. Like I got you. Like and I just was like, well played, sir. I mean that's why you are who you are and I am who I am, right? Like so. Uh, pretty funny that you brought up the Eric Weddle thing because I forgot I got dunked on as I was leaving SoFi Stadium um, with my head down. All of a sudden I look at my phone and it says Will Blackman liked. I was like, wow. I was like, so I was in his bookmarks. Like he had me ready to go. So. <laughs> they saved it all the way back from weeks before when Eric Weddle's oh God, I Eric Weddle, Eric Weddle was a Chargers superstar with like, I was going to games as a child. I still can't believe that, that, it, that he's still playing. Cause all my other childhood, like Antonio Gates, he aged out quickly. Philip rivers. He aged out quickly. I don't understand how Weddle's still playing. Cause like dude was in college playing Calvin Johnson. Like Calvin Johnson just made the Hall of Fame. Weddle was playing against him in college at Utah. And the craziest thing is Sean McVay beat out Calvin Johnson for player of the year, high school player of the year or something like that. Like, yeah. and, and people, people have no idea about things like that. Dude, it's so weird how these things end up working out. Sean McVay is such an interesting character because I'm like, how do you even get the experience to become a head coach at 30 years old? And, you know, he was this... Under Kyle, like you, you just got to make sure that you're giving out the play sheets at the right. And, you know, everything's under Kyle, right? Like everything's on. Well, it's under the Shanahan tree. Forget Kyle. Yeah, it's under like, Mike, but, you right. know. Yeah, but it's all the same stuff. Like that's why, you know, LaFleur, McVay, you know, uh, Arthur Smith, all those guys, like everybody. The league is starting to move in that direction where it's like Shanahan's, Shanahan's system is the base, right? In the same way that like Vic Fangio and like Brandon Staley stuff is like the base for everybody, like too high stuff, all that stuff. And it's the same thing with Shanahan um, in that way now. And it's just it's just fascinating to see where the league is moving. Like, look, LaFleur, like, uh, you know, the, the, there's plenty of examples across the league of guys, whether you run Kyle stuff completely or take a little bit from the pre-snap motion or any of that. Everybody's running cost stuff. Everybody's running that stuff. So, yeah, this is the interesting change is all these assistants come in is unless you have the quarterback that makes it so you don't have to run that system. It's a pretty easy interchangeable thing for, I have 37 year old John Elway. I have Jimmy Garoppolo. I have uh, who is the quarterback of those Washington teams. Was it was Colt McCoy, Did Colt McCoy quarterback, those teams or, Whoever, the, whoever, oh, I guess it was Kirk Cousins still. I guess it was still Kirk Cousins there. But if you have Kirk Cousins in, uh, and Alfred Washington, Morris, yeah, yeah, the Washington. See, that's, the, that's the that's the funny thing is everybody gives Kyle Shanahan the credit for Kirk Cousins. Sean McVay was the one who developed Kirk Cousins. Mm-hmm. Kyle identified Kirk because they were forced to take RG three by Dan Snyder. But Kyle identified Kirk, but he didn't develop him. That was Sean. And and that's something that I feel like is a common misconception. That's why even Kyle went out of his way in a lot of press conferences to make sure he stomped out that narrative because he was tired of hearing it about how Kirk is like his prototypical 
ideal quarterback that he wanted. That's what that's what made all that Mac Jones stuff a little bit more tangible because people said, hey, his ceiling is like Kirk Cousins. And, you know, everybody was like, oh, my God, that's who Kyle loves. So I and Kyle, Kyle was agitated by that. He really was. I mean, if you watch some of those press conferences, he's not really the most sociable guy. He's not really the most. Uh, I don't know what the word is, I guess. He's, he's one of these football coaches that like is very hyper focused on football. That's it. And he doesn't want to talk to anybody. He doesn't want to do anything like he's just doing it out of obligation. But you could tell that there were some tense press conferences when people were bringing that stuff up and he didn't like the idea of being pigeonholed and put in the box. And I think that's pretty funny. Well, this is a thing I feel like is dumb and, and it's not necessarily dumb of like people being dumb. It's just football is very complex and hard to figure out if you're not studying this stuff all the time is that we try and make it easier by putting people in boxes and it's easy to help us understand football. I was talking about this with McVay where I was like, Sean McVay was always, the, he was hired because of Todd Gurley. He's like, can you maximize Todd Gurley? Did it two years, make the Super Bowl, two greatest seasons I've ever seen from a running back with Gurley. And this year they were shit at running the football, but they also didn't run the football very much. Like as much as people were giving McVay crap of like, why are you running the ball so much in the Super Bowl? And why are you doing, you know, why are you not evolving with your roster? I was like, they still threw the ball 70% of the time and they didn't have any of their weapons in that game. So I feel like we put people in boxes without giving credit of like McVay totally changed the offenses he runs based on personnel. Shanahan changes his offenses based on personnel. It's just, it's easy to identify. This is how they learned football. Therefore it's the only way they know how to play football. And it's usually not the case. I talk about that with Belichick too. Right. And McVay's not necessarily the best in-game adjuster, but he's the best, one of the best in-season adjusters. So when when things started to get a little stagnant in the middle of the season and Matthew Stafford wasn't playing his best football, they made a personnel switch to a very heavy set where it was a lot of tight ends and they ran the shit out of the ball from that. And that's when Sony Michelle really came on. It was weird that Sony Michelle became an absolute afterthought, especially in the Super Bowl, because he had played so well for so long, especially when Cam Akers was out, obviously, for that, that period. And, and Daryl Henderson got injured. But even when Henderson came back, it was Sony. And it was really strange to see them turn it right back over to that. So I will give him that. And what, what the 49ers do in terms of, like, you know they want to run outside zone, but they – but Mike, Mike McDaniel, who head coach of Miami, you know, wish him nothing but the best. I hope he does a, 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 you know, an amazing job over there is is the appearance of outside zone with a straight back toss. Right. So the straight back toss is to show the outside zone. Look, get your defenders to overflow to one one side and then open up a cutback lane and give that 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 guy, Elijah Mitchell, a chance to cut right back. And I think those are the little wrinkles. Those are the little things that separate you know, good coaches, coaches who can, you know, when, when things are going right and you can't stop it, can run it over and over to coaches who, okay, you show me one look and you're going to take away outside zone. Boom. I'm going to hit you with this and change it. And that's, that's a little bit of what I was taking with this year with this running game, because Elijah Mitchell literally became a bell cow when that has never been Kyle Shanahan's MO in any way. Like he's never, he's always run two and three and four guys, but mostly gets injured. Doesn't trust Sermon. He got injured. Um, Jeff Wilson, just not part of the plan. Elijah Mitchell became a guy that was like 25 touches. And it was more about being able to identify where to attack and then show those little wrinkles that, you know, we're going to show you something, 
You're going to look at it. You're going to think that you got it. And we're going to play. We're going to use that to our advantage and play against that. And, and that's kind of the only thing that I will say is it, it kind of bit them a little bit in the NFC championship because the Rams were absolutely ready for it. They they were bringing guys in the A and B gaps and they were they were choking out the run. And that's what everybody wants to do with the 49ers with Jimmy Garoppolo is like, OK, make him beat you. Everybody likes to say that. But the Rams actually executed it. Nobody else was able to execute it in the way that they were. And uh, that's why you got to give them props. And that's why they're hosting it. They're hoisting the trophy and the 49ers are not. <laughs> you had to hit the 49ers or not at the very end there because. I mean, they beat the Bengals and they beat the Rams twice. What the hell, man? Like, I mean, no, how, you how guys got you got incredibly lucky. You beat the Packers. You know, you, you guys got luck that it was snowing like crazy. And you had a one in a thousand blocked field goal, blocked punt touchdown combination. And but then... that's when you start to feel like it's your year. Everybody needs plays like that. Everyone needs plays like that in any sort of championship run, right? Of the course. And that. yeah, if, if Jalen Ramsey bats down that pass in week 18, then the 49ers miss the playoffs. Of course. <laughs> like, of course. It's, yeah. I mean, but that's what starts to make you feel like that. I felt like right after that Packers game, I was like, okay, I was like, something's happening now. Like, that's weird. You know, if you would have told me the 49ers were going to score zero offensive touchdowns, I would have said, you lose that game 10 out of 10 times. And if you'd have told me that the Packers were going to score 10 points, I would have said the 49ers win by 11 points, 14 points. So it's strange how things work out, right? Like, and, and that's the thing is special teams have been something the 49ers have been bad at the entire year. And to have it come up in that moment, because no matter what, even though the 49ers didn't win it, Jordan Willis is going to go down in 49ers lower for that pump lot. Like that, that felt like the end of the game. The Packers fans, like I wasn't there because obviously I'm not going to sit in that cold. But it felt like after that pump block, the game was over. The stadium went silent because that offense hadn't been moving. You know that we say what we want about Jimmy Garoppolo, and we know how great Aaron Rodgers is. Jimmy Garoppolo threw for more yards in the second half than Aaron Rodgers did. Mm -hmm. And not all of that has to do with the 49ers defense. Let's just keep it. uh, Let's keep a buck, a buck, a spade, a spade. Aaron Rodgers did not play well in that NFC championship game at all. I mean, that NFC divisional game at all. And that doesn't knock down his legacy that doesn't change the way we look at him but an objective fact is an objective fact and he this just means it was very it. cold it was very cold in green bay and dude you're from <laughs> you're from there this is your this is your this is you right here like it's it, it just lambo isn't what ever since michael vick crushed the buildings back in the day and he beat brett Favre. lambo field has become anybody can win there you know cap cap has done it um eli manning did it uh-huh Jimmy Garoppolo did it. Old ass Tom Brady did it last year. (laughs) There you go. There you go. There you go. Right. Like, so Lambeau isn't exactly the the place that everybody fears. That's why I felt so good going into the game. I just thought the 49ers would have scored more points, but it's funny how football works. A play here, a play there. That's why there's three phases of the game and you have to be good at all of them. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. I got to head out here now, but I appreciate the full time that you gave us. This is like an hour plus podcast. I appreciate it so much, bro. This is fun. It it, it flew by, man. This is a, this is a great discussion and I appreciate you having me on here, man. And I'm, I'm always down to talk about with anybody, man. Hey, I appreciate it. I love the, the availability and, 
you're you're very good at this i will say from the two podcasts we've done together you are good at this whole talking media thing except for except for uh you know my pick in the nfc championship oof uh you know can you delete that that, that podcast from the, the snow buster real quick dude you're talking to someone who is what the the last three weekends went one and six in picking nfl games and the only win was the rams against the 49ers I got wow. every other game incorrect. Now, in fairness, I emotionally hedged by betting the Bengals because I was going to be pissed if the Bengals won the Super Bowl because that's not a real champion. But still, I, I still got it wrong. Like the, the universe was right by me just having to pick the wrong team. I was like, but this is the funny part. I'm very smart when it comes to football. And also, I don't know, one in six at the end of the season because I don't know shit about how this is going to work out. No, it, it is what it is. <laughs> out like this is this is what makes it so fun it's like you think you got it down to a science you think you know something you think you have the advantage and boom this game is a beautiful game man and it, and it humbles us all so that's why uh, it's it's always good to be gracious it's always good to be humble and it's always good to to know that your opinion is still just an opinion but it, and, and it's not better than anybody else's so that's that's what i'm really uh enjoying about all this like when you get it right though Make sure you pat yourself on the back because it's not. Oh, easy. there's nothing that feels better than being right. Oh, Ooh. nothing feels better than being right. No, but no. Uh, I spent I spent three years and 800 episodes crafting this opinion that the Kansas City Chiefs four year run was the greatest four year run in any of our lifetimes, and they just two hours it was gone. Just it's over. I can't I can't argue it anymore because the two hours they just blew it for me, and all of it is very dumb. We invest so much in this, and it's all very very dumb. Yeah, Ugh, I agree. Appreciate it.